invite you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36. Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to be looking at this story that we find here in Isaiah chapter 36 and chapter 37 in just a moment, but it's always so good to see everyone out this morning. Good to have the number that we do. If you're visiting with us, you're our honored guest, and we ask that you come back whenever you're able, and ask that you also stick around for a few minutes after the service that we might be able to introduce ourselves, get to know you a little bit better. But it's just good to be able to <laughs> sing songs of praise to our God and, and worship Him in, in the best way that we can to come with that purpose, not just to attend, but to give a devoted praise to Him. And so it's, it's good to be a part of that. And again, if I... Uh, if you have a Bible, just turn to Isaiah chapter 36. You might just put a bookmark here because we're going to keep coming back to this story. At this part of Judah's history, it, it's really a shaky part of their history. Their brethren in the northern kingdom, Israel, has been wiped out. They've been taken into captivity, never really to return. And now it's just Judah alone. And, and they've been really along with the northern kingdom time and time again tempting God's wrath just like Israel was. And because of this, I think... Assyria, the king Sennacherib, is now at their doorstep and he's trying to take Judah. And as, as they're preparing for this, they try to prepare all their fortified cities and they try to build themselves up so that way they can fight against this Assyrian uh, nation, which really was the powerhouse at the time. What's interesting, though, is that there's a man that was a soldier, and his title's Rabshakeh. So I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to keep saying the Rabshakeh. I'm just going to say Rabshakeh just for short. But he is the Assyrian commander of this army. And as he is trying to take Judah, and as he's trying to, you know, obviously win this, this war or battle, he starts by asking a very specific question to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and to the people of Judah as they stare down the might of the Assyrian Empire. And, it's, and I think it's interesting, this kind of question that he begins with. In Isaiah chapter 36, in verse 4, it says, Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? The title of this lesson is, is kind of based on this passage here where he says, whom, on whom do you really rely? Really, in whom do you put your trust that you are going to try and face King Sennacherib, face me, face the entirety of the, the most powerful army on the earth at this point? And there are a few ways that he is going to try and emphasize this question throughout this story but what I want to point out that as he, he 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 fights against God's people this is his main tactic to try and make them question their faith in God and frankly I don't think that we see much different tactics today I think there are I think there are certainly different ways that people try to attack the faith but I think this is one that has not been put down men using big words to tear down our faith while attacking the very words of God but whose words should we put more stock in Whose words are we going to rely on? Are we going to trust in? And I would just, just emphasize the point that he makes there when he says uh, that, that as you're trying to prepare yourself for the war with just empty words. We're going to come back to that later on. But just remember, that's how he begins. And so what I want to start with is how the enemies of God frequently will try to attack 
our faith in God and to attack faith just, just as a concept completely. And so a few different ways that they do that. In the first instance, what I want to start with is that they often begin with a false presupposition or they begin on a false premise. They try to begin the conversation or the debate without having proven certain ideas that they act like are, are already the case. Over in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, which is a parallel account to this, and you might put a bookmark there as well, but 2 Chronicles chapter 32, <coughs> in verse 18, one of the ways that Assyria does this, or that the Rabshakeh does this, in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 18, it says, they called this out with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who are on the wall to frighten and terrify them so that they might take the city. Just note that this is a part of the tactics. They're, they're trying to make sure that they, that they intimidate these people, that they're scaring these people. In fact, it's funny because as the messengers of Hezekiah are talking to these messengers, they say, please, just speak with us and, and don't speak in our language. And so what do they do? They say, no, we're going to go ahead and speak in Hebrew and we're going to let everybody know what the threats are. In verse 19, they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as of the gods of the peoples of the earth, the work of men's hands. Now here, from the very beginning, that's a major problem, isn't it? What, what was their goal there? It, their goal is to warp God into a limited, one of many created gods instead of the all-powerful creator. And what we're going to find is that there's a major contrast between how these tactics, these men and their tactics, how they speak about God and how Hezekiah and the people of Judah speak about God. Because it's two completely separate ways. The world tends to start the conversation. And, and not just in Isaiah chapter 36, but even today, they start the conversation with the false premise that God is, is really, it, they're not coming to the scriptures speaking about him the way that he does. They come and try to act like he is a created God. They come and they try to act like, well, this, this is not really the, the, the God of the Bible. It's, it's a created God that they've made in their own image. And the intended result of that is clearly to cause doubt in people's trust of God's power. Or maybe just to use a straw man argument so that way they can win a little bit easier. And we need to be mindful of these kind of tactics. There's a need to start discussions about the Bible. There's a need, especially when we're trying to evangelize to people in our Bible studies, we have to start accurately and not allow others to set the narrative. I think one thing that we struggle with, and I think it's just because of our culture, I don't know exactly what, what I don't know where exactly this has come from, but it's almost like if we ask a question at all that's even remotely you know, kind of firing back, not even firing back, but just kind of questioning someone's motives or questioning someone's thought process. It's like people treat that like you're insulting or you're being offensive. There's nothing offensive about asking a question. And especially when we're having Bible studies with people, we need to be able to ask pointed questions just like we were talking about last week. And say, are you sure that that's accurate information? Are you sure that we're talking about the same kind of God? In fact, when you think about how Paul comes to uh, Athens and he's preaching not to Jews but to Greeks and to people who are you know worshiping this unknown God he uses that avenue to say it's this creator that I'm trying it's, it's this one that created everything that I'm trying to talk to you about the, the, this notion of God being the creator is never put down and so we need to make sure that, that we uh, when we start these conversations with people we're coming to the Bible and, and, and letting God speak about who he is what kind of character he has what kind of being he is. Because if we're coming to the conversation and ultimately someone thinks that this is like the God of 
the, the gods of the world, we're not going to get anywhere. Because what authority does that carry? It really carries none. And so we need to start from, wouldn't you know, uh, the topic of authority. And I think that this comes up frequently in a lot of different areas as well. You, you might, when you're trying to have a conversation about someone about worship, and someone may say, well, God just wants me to worship him. It doesn't matter how we worship him. That's a false premise. First, before we start talking about the more intricate, the more detailed matters of how God wants us to worship him, we're first going to have to set up a foundation of, of the fact that God desires truth and spirit. And, and, and this kind of just goes across the board. Whenever you come to any, whatever topic it is, you have to start the conversation with the right foundation. Because if you try to build on sand, what's going to happen? It's, it's going to fall down. It's going to fall flat. And so our efforts are going to be meaningless if we don't fix the, the false presupposition. And so this is how he tries to start scaring the people that are relying on God by, by just beginning with a false premise. But not only that, you come down further in Isaiah chapter 36 in verse 7, back over to Isaiah chapter 36 in verse 7. And he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? And is said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now this is interesting because here he's trying to really relate with the people. What is he talking about? But he's trying to talk about, well, their religion. He's trying to talk about their laws and their customs. And, 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 and so he's trying to say, if, if you try to come to me and, 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 and start speaking to me uh, about your own religion, guess what? I'm going to have to bring this up, the fact that your own king is doing things or has done things that really show that you don't care about religion. And I think even this tactic is the same today, that people either purposeful, whether it is purposeful or mistakenly, they misinterpret Scripture. He tried to twist the facts of Scripture to mean what he wanted for his motives. And... <laughs> Yes, we see that a lot today. Over in 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, again, another parallel count to this. In 2 Kings chapter 18, this is very interesting as well. Because here, uh, the, the, uh, Assyria, Rabshakeh, is trying to indicate that Hezekiah, he doesn't care about your God. He doesn't care about your religion. And yet, what we find in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 3, when God... God speaks about Hezekiah. He says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that, Mo that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was... There was more, uh, after him, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded uh, Moses. So who do you think is right in this situation? Do you think it's the, the stranger? Do you think it's the man who doesn't care about God's scriptures at all and is trying to use them for his own benefit? Or do you think it's the one who is truly clinging to scripture and clinging to God. I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean more on the side of the one who's trying to cling to God's scriptures, not just using it for their own benefit, not just twisting it and bending it so that way it will say what they want it to say. 
That's what Rabshakeh was doing. But Hezekiah, what did he learn? But as he's reading through the scriptures, as he hears and listens to the prophets, all he understands is exactly what God has been saying the entire time, that these, these high places, they needed to be removed from the beginning. And remember when we were looking at 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon gives that lavish offering. There's even within that context, as, and we mentioned this last week, but, but it, within the context it says that he loved God and it was giving a devoted offering to him, but he did also give these offerings on the high places. And so even you go just a few you know, generations back, even from that standpoint, you have the scripture saying these high places never should have been a part of their worship. And here you come to a man that's finally doing what God always wanted his people to do when they came into the promised land. And so I go through all that just to say, people constantly do this. They, people are constantly trying to base their arguments on Scripture, but ultimately they fail the test utterly. Over in 2 Peter chapter 3, in the New Testament, Peter makes clear that this is a tactic that just will never go away. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3, beginning, first of all, look at this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. So what is he saying? They're trying to hearken back to promises that God gave to his people. And what are they doing? They're making fun of them. Well, where is, where is this judgment going to come from? When is it going to come? You skip down to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So isn't it interesting that Peter has to remind them people are going to continue doing this. They're going to continue using the scriptures, the very thing that we trust in and put our confidence in, ultimately to try and belittle your confidence, to try and take it away. And it's silly things. How many times have you heard someone say, hey, don't you remember that God said judge not? What are they doing? They're using scripture. And you know who else uses scripture? I, I believe that there was a serpent that used scripture one time. I believe that, that the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness and tried to use scripture with him. Just because someone is quoting scripture does not mean that they are using it accurately. And you know how we know? We just got to come to this. And, and, and how many times has someone maybe come and said, hey, God is love. So, so you pointing out what are, so, you know, quote unquote sins to people is unloving. Is it really? See, this is someone, these are people who are trying to quote scriptures that don't understand it themselves and don't care about it themselves. And so why are we going to, why are we going to allow this to be effective because ultimately it's not. I'm not going to, to be threatened by someone who is completely illiterate when it comes to God's word. And so we need to have that same mindset when people do this today. And so this is a couple ways that people try to attack our faith. Another way, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 36, another way that they do this is that some 
will just straight up use their own wisdom or their own authority. In picking up in verse 8 where we left off, Sennacherib continues, Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. I think it's pretty interesting that he, you know, he just goes further and further and further in his, in his trying to tear down the people's trust and faith in God. The Lord himself is the one that told me to come and grab it. Okay. You know, don't you realize that if I'm here, your God wants this to happen. Don't you realize that if I'm here, that, that just consider what I'm saying. Maybe God put me here because he wants you to listen to me. Just know that it's interesting that this attack is predicated on an immediate reward that he gives in verse 8. Hey, if you just do this, maybe the Lord wanted you to have the reward. Maybe the Lord wanted you to be able to have all of these things that the king will give to you. If you just, if you just stop submitting to God and start submitting to him. And I'll tell you, I think that this tactic is especially particularly focused on young people, the younger generations today. I think this hits everybody, but especially the younger generations. That it's going to be based on a reward. Think about what you can do. You know, when, when, when uh, somebody is engaged in sports and of course games frequently tend to you know come around on Wednesday nights during worship service or maybe even on Sundays and then sometimes maybe the coach or just the other players or, or just a close friend it will say something like don't you understand that if you just if you just skip worship just this one worship service just so that you can go to this game if you're here more often you might be able to get a starting position if you just start skipping just a little bit so that you can be here more often you might get scouted or maybe, maybe going away from, from sports, maybe it's just something completely random. A good friend comes up and says, don't you think that God wants you to be happy? I'll tell you what, even God's people use this sometimes. There was a woman who knew better. And she had been a Christian for a few decades. And she tried to use this with me. She was engaged in adultery. She was engaged in all kinds of sin. And as she was trying to make this defense with, with several people, she looked at us and said, don't you think that God just wants me to be happy? And what she was trying to do was overlook the unrepentant sin, like, you know, separating and divorcing your spouse. Is that going to work with God? But I'll tell you, people do use this, and, and, and they use it more often than we realize. That, that, listen, I think that this is something that God wants me to do. I think that God wants me to be happy. What God wants you to be is joyful in Him, not happy in sin momentarily. And so this is another tactic that they use. And finally, one tactic that they use is just, it's just insults. It's just it, uh, what's called an ad hominem attack or an ad hominem uh, accusation, which is a logical fallacy. What that means is it's when you start attacking, instead of attacking, you know, the, the actual logic or you attack the idea with some form of argument or debate, what you start doing is attacking the person. You know where we see this happen a lot? On, on school playgrounds with children. You know, as soon as someone gets in an argument and they start losing, what do they say? Well, you have cooties. You know what? That works with children. 
And you say, well, I hear a lot of adults do that too. I mean what I say. It works with children, whether they are legitimate children or they're a grown man with a child's mind. This works with immature people. This should have no effect on someone who is saturated with the maturity that the scriptures bring. Okay? Back over in Isaiah chapter 36 and verse 13. Just listen to what the Reb Shaka says. It says, He stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me, and eat each of his vine, and each of his fig tree, and drink each of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. But where the Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us, has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepervaim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord would be deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And so what does he do? Incidentally, don't forget that there is a reward saturated all throughout these threats, but ultimately he ends up just trying to belittle the faith. He ends up, regardless of anything else that he said, he's even tried to quote scripture, but this is really how he truly views God. As, as, as nothing. Back over in 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32. And, and I, I'm, I'm going back and forth between these three, pa- these three uh, parallel passages because I, I like the different details that it gives us. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, in verse 7, listen to the words of Hezekiah. Because these threats, you could imagine... Staring at literally the strongest army in the world, you can imagine soldiers hearing these things and thinking, I could escape death. And Judah's not doing too hot right now anyway. But here you have a faithful king who comes to his people and says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is, I think, one of the shining moments of, of, of Israel once they become a kingdom and especially after uh, the northern kingdom has been put away and it's just Judah alone. This is one of their best moments. Because instead of caving in, they rely on... It's, it's not just because they really liked Hezekiah. It's because Hezekiah was leaning on the scriptures. He was leaning on God, the solid ground. And I would just ask one thing about this. Are true words any less true because the world views them as weak or empty words as he starts with, the Rabshakeh does? Or maybe they just say that this is futile. I, 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 uh, I tried to paraphrase this last week, um, but I kind of failed. But, but Richard Dawkins, he's, he's a a major skeptic and an apologetic, incidentally, uh, trying to preach a, a message that basically says there is no God. But as he talks about, you know, different things you find in the Bible, he focuses in on miracles. And this is what he says about those who believe it. He says, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. 
You understand what he's really saying? Translation, only stupid people believe this. Only children believe this. Once you grow up, once you're mature, then you start to understand, then you start to reason. But you know what he's doing? He's not attacking any argument. He's not attacking any logic. He's just attacking people. He's saying, you're just stupid if you believe this. Well, I guess I'm just going to have to live with the fact that you think that I'm an idiot. Okay. I guess that's, gonna, that's just going to ruin my entire week. I'm not going to be able to sleep at all tonight. General rule of thumb, if you resign to insults to win an argument, you've already lost. And I think it's the same even with scholarly men such as a man like Richard Dawkins, who has a lot of, has a lot of you know, pomp and, and popularity. But he's already lost when you've started relying on slander, you know, just malicious insults. Faith is more resilient than silly little childish trash, trash talk. At least it should be, as long as our faith is uh, truly instilled. And so we need to be careful that we don't fall for this, these silly, silly things that the world tries to do to attack our faith. Now, very briefly, I just want to focus on the ending of this story. With all of that being said, because the world is going to constantly try to attack our faith, how are we supposed to respond? How does faithfulness respond? And I want to look at the example of Hezekiah back in Isaiah 36, beginning in verse 21. It says, And the Lord sent an angel after Hezekiah had prayed and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every... Or I'm in Second Chronicles 32, excuse me. Second Chronicles 32, but uh, Isaiah 36 in verse 21. It says, But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was do not answer him after the threats of Rabshakeh. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejoicing. Uh, rebuke and rejection for children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh whom his master the king of Assyria has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left and even you'll see even further as Hezekiah prays to God what we find here in his example is that the first place he goes is to God and his Priority and his main focus stays on God. Now we're going to talk about, I think, the actions that need to follow this, but even when you look back at 2 Kings chapter 18, I love the way it talks about Hezekiah in verses 5 through 6 that we already read, that he clung to the Lord. You imagine that. Someone who, I mean, just thinking about Hawk, sometimes he does not want to be put down. And so what does he do? He hangs on with a strength that you would be shocked by because he doesn't want to touch the ground. He wants you to hold him. And I, and I think about that like a child just trying to cling on, trying to hold on so that you, you, you can't let go of him. I love the thought of that being pointed to God. And that's what I see when you look at the example of Hezekiah, that he truly did cling to the Lord in everything, in every moment, in every circumstance. And I think we like that example as well. We want to be described in this way. But if we want to be described as one who clings to God like Hezekiah, we need to be willing to respond in the same way that he does in moments of crisis. 
we want to be described that way. But when push comes to shove and the circumstances get really difficult, those are the moments, well, okay, I've been clinging well when things are easy. I don't have to cling right now. I'm going to have to do some other things to actually get things done. Is that clinging to the Lord? Is that following the example of Hezekiah? Hezekiah, not only does he pray to God first and does he send out for, for one of the prophets of the Lord, but in verse 14 beginning, he's going to pour his heart out to God. So are we really, are we really clinging to God? Are we really going to him first and foremost, or are we going somewhere else? Where, when, when I get bad news, when I need advice, where's the first place that I go? Who's the first person that I go to? And you could even, you know, talk about when it comes to, you know, maybe bad news medically. And you get a bad report back and you're worried about that. Who's the first person that we go to? Who's the only person we go to? Is it the doctor or is it the Lord? And I'm not saying don't go to the doctor. What I'm saying is you need to make sure that your priorities are straight. Because if you go to the doctor and only him and leave God out of the picture, really, who is the one that could really change the tide? Who is the one that has tr any true impact? And so, again, I'm not saying that we, don't, <laughs> that we don't go to our parents for advice. We don't go to the doctor when we get a bad, uh, you know, medical report but what we need to start with is God and we need to maintain that correspondence we need to maintain that relationship as we may seek advice from others as we may go to the doctor and so we, we, we can't just leave him out of the process altogether and I think about what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17 that we pray without ceasing we look at a verse like that and sometimes Christians will think you know, that, that, that's silly is it really you know how many things we could pray for, not just with thanksgiving, but just in moments like this. It almost seems never ending. The real question is, I mean, honestly, what time do we have left other than to pray to God? And maybe the reason that we don't come to him first, maybe the reason that our prayer life is hindered is because the faith, like Hezekiah, is just not there. So we need to ask ourselves, are we seeking him first and foremost? Not only that, but Hezekiah gets busy. He does what he can do. He works on the things that he can. Back over in 2 Chronicles in uh, chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, as we've been reading about. He besieged the fortified cities and thought, uh, or fought to break into them for himself. Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs in the stream which flowed through the region saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that he had broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside wall and strengthened the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. Does it sound like Hezekiah was just laying back? I'm going to speak to God and ask him to take care of it and then I'm just going to lay back. I'm not going to do anything. There's a balance that's needed. And I think we see it so beautifully here as we see the example of, of Hezekiah. What people tend to do is, is just forget about this kind of balance. They either pray and do nothing, or they do as much as they can physically and forget God entirely. And I'll just, I have to say, both are equally unfaithful. And both are equally unsuccessful. We need to learn to be like Hezekiah, who clearly puts his trust first and foremost in God. But while doing the things that he himself can and really should have been doing all along. He's, he's doing, the th he's doing his, his chores. 
He's doing the things that he knows uh, shouldn't go undone. There's something to be said about people who come to God and pray to him. But, but often what we do, as, and, and you know, we sometimes use this analogy, we try to use him as a vending machine in the sky, a cosmic vending machine in the sky, as even skeptics will call him. The, that insult should never be able to be used about me. People should see that I'm coming to God constantly and I'm constantly praying to him, but I'm doing the things that he would expect from me to do and working where he expects me to work. And so this balance is kept well when our first priority and thought is God's will and God's glorification. Continuing on, when you look at that prayer in Isaiah 36 and verse 14, when it says that he brings these words to God the, uh, of the Rabshakeh in verse 14, Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Or, uh, this is verse uh, chapter 37. I don't know why I keep getting mixed up. Chapter 37 of Isaiah in verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. Isn't it interesting that as he's making this plea, to the Lord, that he's focusing not as much on, you know, do this to bring me victory. He's constantly coming back to do this for your glorification. Do this so that the nations may know, not that I am the greatest king on earth, but that you are, and that you are the only God. I love how this this point when he uses the term, you know, the, you are not like those other gods of the other countries, you know, made of wood and stone. That specific point is brought up in all three accounts in Second Chronicles chapter 32, 2 Kings chapter 18, and Isaiah chapter 37. Every single account that goes through the prayer of Isaiah, it brings it up over and over that you are not like the idols of this world, created gods. And I think that that's important. And when God mentions this in every single account, I think he's really trying to emphasize it for a point. That it's important to remember, just as we started, we're not talking about a created God here. We're talking about the creator that made everything. And so the focus of Hezekiah's prayer was on God's glorification, on his honor, and ultimately on his will. I want you to do this not for me. I want you to do this for you. I want you to do this so that, so that the world will know that you are the one who has the victory. And when we pray like this, when we pray like Jesus, who knew what was coming in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. When we pray like this, our trust in God grows. And when we act like this, our faith will be effective. If we don't, our faith will dwindle and ultimately die. And our faith will be absolutely ineffective and so we need to try to be more like Hezekiah especially in moments of crisis but we end obviously with the inevitable conclusion which is victory in God I, I, I think that too often because it's just a given we overlook this part of the story well 
Obviously, God's going to have the victory. Obviously, God is going to beat his enemies. Obviously, he's going to punish the wicked and punish those who go against him and his people. And because it's so obvious, we tend to take it for granted. Because it's so obvious, this is generally the part that we skip over. I already know the ending. And so we don't need to watch it again. We don't need to hear it again. But I just, I think it's too important to constantly remind ourselves of who we are serving. Because God emphatically answers the question that we started with. In whom do you rely? In whom do you trust? In verse 22 of Isaiah 37, it says that this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. So Sennacherib, King Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh, they come and they say, okay, who is going to save you? And guess what? Because they decided to defy God, not just win over a, a, a little nation here, but they chose to bring God's name into it and tried to sully it. Because of this, now you're going to get an answer. And not, not from Hezekiah, but directly from God. What a terrifying position to be in. Do we sometimes forget the odds that we face with God? When, when, God, when we are on God's side, in contrast to the odds that his enemies have in opposing him. C continuing in that uh, description there, in verse 24 of Isaiah chapter 30, uh, 37, it says, Though your servants you have reproached, the, through your servants you have reproached the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses and I will go to its highest peak its thickest forest I dug wells and drank waters and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt have you not heard long ago I did it from ancient times I planned it now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps Therefore their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because of your raging against me. And because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. It's interesting because this is the same judgment that's going to be given to God's people because of their rebellion against him. And in fact, Assyria, I believe, was being used as a method of God's judgment against his people because they had sinned against him. But what happens when these same people decide that they're going to do the exact same thing that the Israelites did to bring this judgment on themselves? He says, okay, now I'm going to bring it on you. Now a hook's going to be put in your nose, and I'm going to take you back by the way that you came, regardless of, of Assyria's perceived power. They were never the one in control. <laughs> They thought that they had everything because they were destroying all these kingdoms. But really, God was using them. Isn't that interesting? It does make you ponder that God can even use those that are his people's enemies ultimately for his purpose. And no matter what his people do or his enemies do, he's still going to have the victory. He never loses that control. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? What is that saying? But that there's, there's no force, there's no reckoning that's going to come that can even remotely stand up against God. And we need to remember that the one really in control can change the tide spiritually if we make the change moving closer to him. If we make the change to repent and be on his side. Because if we stay 
on the side of his enemies, just understand that the victory is going to be devastating. In verse 35, it says, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nishroch, his god, that Adremelech and Cherazer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. The one who is talking so big at the beginning of the story loses his forces and loses his life because he defied the God of Israel. 185,000 opponents dead. And with how many? Just one angel. I forget. How many, how many angels does, does God have control over again? What is the, he the commander of but legions? And, and I bring this up just to say, don't just think about the victory that he can bring. Think about that defeat. Do you want to be on the side that receives this kind of judgment? that receives this kind of punishment, deserved and just. I want to be on the side of Hezekiah. I want to be on the side where, where God says, I am going to bring the victory for my sake. Do you have any part in that victory? Maybe you haven't been like Hezekiah. If you're a Christian, you've gone astray. Maybe you've lost your faith to a degree. Maybe you've allowed some of these tactics, these threats of the world to affect your confidence in God. You can rebolster that faith and that confidence. Just keep thinking about the victory. Keep thinking about all of these examples of God bringing judgment on his enemies. And I promise you, it's encouraging. If you are not a Christian, I would just keep this in mind. The utterly devastating conclusion of being God's enemy, of not being his child, and not being a part of his nation, is that complete and utter destruction that you saw at the end of the story. That's what's awaiting you. No matter who you are, if you have not put Christ on and not become a part of his kingdom and one of his children, that destruction is at your door. Don't forget that. If you want to become a Christian, and you want to partake, be able to partake in God's victory for his honor and his glorification, then we would invite you to do that. If you're willing to do all the things that Christ has said that you need to do, that means repent of everything, all the sins, everything that can't be a part of his kingdom. Make a confession based on your belief and, and be faithful in his commandments. And be baptized to rise in newness of his life, or baptized into his death to rise in newness of his life, and to live a resurrected life. You can have that salvation and that victory. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.